Amen. Well, good morning. Um, one of the things that we do is uh, we are we share testimonies like once a, a month. We're starting to get more in, into doing that, and it's not only a testimony of how you came to know the Lord, but what is God doing in your life. So last time I interviewed uh, Ryan Petrick, um, just about what the Lord is doing in his life and in Peru. Uh, my daughter Rebecca is back from the Philippines after being gone for over a year, so. Um, I'm going to have her come up, and I'm going to interview her. So, Rebecca, come on up. So maybe um, you could use this. And uh, right, this is my daughter, Rebecca. It's good to have her home. Um, yeah, one of the things that we talked about before she went, uh, these were questions that that um, that came up as she was praying about going, and I wanted to bring you in on some of the thought process behind it as well, and how God led her, because I, I think it's important, uh, again, I used to think of missionaries before I knew missionaries as those people out there, and then once you see how they're just regular people that God calls to go to a different place, and you start to realize that we're all missionaries wherever we are, but then sometimes God has a special mission, and he may send us to another place. And so, Rebecca, maybe you could share what motivated you to go to the Philippines in the first place to work with IJM. Um, so, thanks. Um, so I've always had um, a heart for this particular work. International Justice Mission is a human rights agency that works to um, help protect the poor in different places around the world. So they all have different casework in each place. Um, where I was particularly, they help victims of sex trafficking. Um, and so it was something that had always been close to my heart. And living in L.A., I was able to, um, through my journalism studies, kind of see it up close and personal and just see, um, see the problem here in our own country. And, and so I really started thinking about it internationally, thinking about these places where there aren't where there's a lot of corrupt and broken justice systems. So while um, trafficking happens everywhere, just really realizing that in these countries, a lot of the poor don't even have the protection of the law, even if they had, um, you know, even if they called the police, they couldn't trust that something was going to happen. So um, I started thinking about it. And, and then just on a, on a deeper level of what motivated me is, like I firmly believe that nothing I have is... Like, I believe everything I have is a gift. I believe everything I have is from God. Whether it's resources, whether it's um, skills or opportunities, um, I think, it, like, there's no reason that I was born to the family I was born into, in the place I was born into, and a girl in the Philippines wasn't or had a different, has a different life than I did. I, and not saying there's not a reason, like, God doesn't have a plan, but saying there's, like, I didn't do anything to earn that. And so realizing that I think um, because the world is broken, I think that manifests itself in how resources are distributed, distributed unequally. Like some of us have more money than others. Some of us have more opportunities than others. And that's not because intrinsically I deserve it anymore. And so just realizing that I think really God's heart for justice in this world is to see as for us to be faithful in the way that we distribute what he's given us and in the way that um, we're able to use those opportunities and our resources to help others. And so, yeah, that's what motivated me to go. And, you know, when we were talking about that, um, we realized that 
we're born in the situation we're born into. So someone that works hard, that goes to school, they, they do a good job, they start to get promoted, they start to work their way up, they start to earn money, and it's easy for that person just to think, well, I earned this. So because I earned this, why should I help someone else? But realize this, you weren't born in communist China. You weren't born into a poverty-stricken slum. You were born where you were born, and you had the opportunities that you had. So while you did something with those opportunities, it was still God's grace that you were born into the situation that you were born into. And there's a stewardship that comes into that. So that's kind of one of the things that we had talked about as well. Um, maybe you could share what you did there. What, what was uh, your job there? What did you do when you were over in the Philippines? So my official position was the communications intern. So it was... Um, a lot of it was in an office, um, not out doing rescue operations all the time. Um, I would do different profiles and news stories to send back to our headquarters in D.C. or for our local net newsletter that goes out to our government partners. So that was really great because I just had a chance to interview clients and really share their stories and to really talk to these, some, some of these girls after the rescue and who were thriving now and who are in school and kind of get to share um, share that. Uh, I would also do like media relations and try to get press releases out after we had rescue operations just so that people know what's happening so that um, the demand is deterred from feeling like they can come to the Philippines and buy sex with no consequence. Um, yeah. So, you know, when, uh, when people ask you, like, what did you do, it's hard to encapsulate that. Like, in, you know, you're, you're gone for a year. Um, just like your jobs, when people ask you what you do, and you just say one word, like, oh, I'm a, I work in logistics. Well, what does that even mean, right? So what one story maybe you could share or event captures kind of the heart of the mission for you? Mm -hmm. um, so while I, wasn't, I was in an office for a lot of it, also because our office was so small, we were actually – able to go on rescue operations and really able to help out with that because the office was small enough that they needed everyone who could help. Um, and so I think one story or one particular operation that really um, impacted me was, well, there were two that were connected. And so one happened, I had gone on, a, on vacation for a weekend. I was visiting uh, Calvary Chapel Bacola, the children's home we support there. And I got new. I kept getting all these texts because we get texts when stuff's going on, so we can stay updated. And they had this spur of the moment, like last minute surprise operation, kind of. And they were able to rescue one nine-year-old girl and one sixteen-year-old girl. Um, and it was crazy reading back through the text because I wasn't there at the time. But like they didn't think it was going to happen. They got the intel, and then they couldn't find the girls. And so they were searching, and for hours, they just, like, kept sending out texts to just keep praying. And they were able to rescue these girls. Um, but it didn't feel like closure to them because they rescued two girls, but they hadn't arrested a perpetrator. And they knew that there were still really young girls out there. Um, not all of our cases are with girls this young, but in this case, we knew that they were really young girls. Um, and so I came when I came back, we were planning another rescue operation, and they thought – there might be three of these girls out there, um, three young girls, 11 to 13 years old. So we were praying really hard for that. And then the night of the operation comes. And so we're still, we're waiting to hear news that they got these girls. And they keep saying, like, we can't find them. And we have police out, and they're searching, and they're going to all these places. And it was hours, and we were still praying and wondering, like, if anything was going to happen or if we're going to have to 
give up and like restart. Um, and then we finally got a text and it was just so amazing because we were really praying really hard for these three girls and like wondering and doubting even if God was going to come through. And we were able to rescue six girls, um, six 11 to 13 year old girls. And um, I was really just blessed to be a part of that. Um, I was able to help on the aftercare side that time because um, actually, yeah, all of our social workers were on leave. So it was like a really crazy time for that to happen. Um, but I was able to stay with the girls and, and, um, and it was just really awesome to get to, um, just play with them. Like you're not thinking about everything that happened to them while you're there. I mean, it's not going to be beneficial for anyone. Um, but so just like to play with them and like, I, I, uh, when I got there, they saw my speaker and they got really excited and they're like, Oh, let's do the nene. So I was able to like play nene. So there's, it was just a bizarre experience to be with these six girls and to like all be doing the nene in this processing center. Um, and and one of the girls. For those of you, that, that's a dance, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a popular dance. Um, and so, uh, what was I saying? Um, you were gonna nene right now. No, no. <laughs> Yeah, so it was just uh, it was just really fun to like be able to play with the kids and just to realize that they were able to be kids again. Um, we were like playing hide and seek, and they were being troublemakers and like getting baby powder all over their faces and like running around jumping on beds. Um, and then at, at one point, um, it was actually really crazy because um, one of the girls she probably just was having she had gone through a lot of trauma, maybe more so than the other girls. So she was, like, kind of not doing well and was a little out of it, and she um, started throwing up. And so then me and there was one social worker in the room, so we started helping her. And and then um, we're both focused on her, and that's we're the only two people there, only two, like, adults. And so then I, then I like, go back, and I start doing a head count. I, like, count all the girls. I'm like, oh, my gosh, where, where is one of these girls? And I, I was freaking out. So I went and I looked under every bed. I looked in every cupboard. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, lost, I lost a client. Like, what in the world? So I um, phoned the other. I was just like, I was shaking. I was so scared. And I had realized that when we were both focused on this girl who was really sick, like there's no one was watching the other room where there was a back door. Um, and so I was so scared. And I, I called... Um, I called the the villa, the other or the other place with all of the rest of my team. I was like, I don't know where this girl is, and so all of a sudden, so they all freak out. I mean, they don't freak out like they pull out the big flashlights. They all start running out the doors into the woods, and um, and then I hear giggling from the other room, and I realized we had an aftercare supply box. It's like this big, and she had taken the supplies out and like f- curled up into that box and was hiding because we were playing hide and seek earlier. Oh my! And so. It was just, it was so overwhelming, and she, and we were like, why, what did you do? And I think after, she was, like, laughing at first, and then I think she realized how scared we all were, so she got, like, really upset and was crying, and, um, and so I was just, like, with her, and I was just like, hey, you know, like, we're not mad at you, no one's mad at you, like, we were scared because we care so much about you, and we don't, like, want anything to happen to you, and, um, and it was really fun because she was, a really big Taylor Swift fan I had found out. She had an I Heart Taylor Swift henna tattoo on her hand. 
and I'm a really big Taylor Swift fan. So it was I just was able to like sit with her and um, play Taylor Swift for her, and like and then afterwards we watched Tangled, and I don't know, it was just a a really great um, just opportunity to be there, and it's really hard. Like that was one of the operations where afterwards a lot of us were just wondering kind of like how to process it and feeling like it, it's a hard thing to figure out how you feel about it and to go through all those emotions. But um, it was just a, like, it was a blessing to realize it's it's heartbreaking to be there and to, to see that and to know what happened to these girls, but also a blessing to be a part of it and to know that, like, when they look back one day at the night they were rescued to really hope that they were able to feel loved and to look back and see that. Um, and, and I was able to go and visit those girls later in their, in their shelter and like, they're all doing really well and they're so like joyful to be there. Um, the nine year old had texted us or, or the nine year old had told her social worker who had texted our office, um, a few days after she was rescued and they were like, how do you like this shelter? You know, cause she's living there. And she said, I like it because I get to eat cookies and play with my friends. And it was just, it was just so great to see, like, just the freedom they have to be kids and just to recognize they get to just play and eat cookies, you know? So. I have one more question, and then uh, we'll show a quick video, and we'll pray for Rebecca. Um, how did your, you see your work as part of, like, a, a proclamation of the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus? How did you see what you did? Maybe you weren't necessarily preaching the gospel, but how was your work a part of the gospel? Um, I think there are a few ways um, that I really saw that work as part of the gospel. Um, the first way is just realizing that when you tell someone God loves you, um, a lot of times if you don't know what real love looks like, I think that's really hard to understand, you know. Um, and so I think like just being able to share, show these girls what love looks like, what God's love looks like, and just showing them that, you know, God's love um, pursues them, and God's love rescues them, and God's love will keep loving them and supporting them, you know, even if they don't want the help, or even if um, it's hard, and so I really think, like, later on in life, when they're in a lot of our shelters are um, Christian organiza organizations or faith-based shelters, and just, like, later on when they get to hear, you know, God loves you, they'll actually have a picture of what that looks like. Um, I think that's one way. The other way I touched on is, like, I think the gospel really is about how Christ came down to us and how Christ pursues us. And just realizing for, um, for these girls, I think it shows that, you know, we have our social workers and our lawyers who... Don't, didn't have to enter into this situation, but chose to, um, and they chose to pursue, and especially our social workers. Um, I told a story of some of our younger girls, but it's it's hard with some of our older girls, you know, like, they're, ups, they're upset a lot of times because they, I mean, this is how they make money. This is how they're feeding their kids. Um, they've been brainwashed into this is all they know, and so when you take them out of that, it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult to process what's happened to them. It's difficult to figure out what's going to happen next. And so just the fact that our social workers, I've seen them, I've seen, like, their hearts broken again and again because they pursue these girls, even if these girls, like, refuse at first, even these girls fight them at first. 
And those are some of my favorite stories to talk to clients now who are thriving and to see like in the beginning, people wanted to give up on them just because they were refusing services. They wouldn't meet with our social workers. Um, and, and so I think that's another aspect of the gospel is just that um, God's uh, gift to us and his grace is not dependent on what we do. And even if, even though like I have, refu- I would have, I refused him so many times or even though we hurt him so many times and break his heart, like he recklessly pursues us even when other people are saying that it doesn't make sense or it seems like a lost cause. Um, and then the third way is just through, I think the gospel is grace and the gospel means that we are redeemed and that our title is no longer um, our past or our sins. Our title is redeemed and forgiven and a daughter of God. And, and so I really was also able to see that in our work, that these girls no longer see themselves as like, I am a prostitute or I am, you know, <laughs> a victim of this abuse. Like, but they see themselves as survivors and they see themselves as loved and daughters of God. And, and just to have that as their new, as their new name, their new identifier is just a really great picture of the gospel. Awesome. Uh, we're going to show a quick video uh, about IGM, and then we're going to pray for Rebecca. So we could just go ahead and play that video. So this is the target establishment. We're a suspect view for our victims. And remember, if there's a hazard or dangerous situation, move yourself in a position of we saw about 1,200 little kids and found out that they were in fact trafficked and they were in fact slaves. These little kids are on this boat. They are not fed. They are abused beyond imagination. operations all over the world rescuing people from slavery because today there are criminals who abuse children sell girls how old is she 12 how much 30 yeah yeah i'm at a and force families into slavery criminals prey on the easiest target the world's poor because they expect no one to defend them Pareha po tayong mga tao, hindi po tayo ipagay or hayop na pwedeng gamitin lang sa pansarili. But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. Together, we form the largest international anti-slavery organization in the world. But slavery won't come to an end until criminals know they can't get away with it. So we partner with local police to arrest and prosecute criminals. This sends a message to slave owners. We will not go away. 
we stay with the survivors until they are healed, until they are free. Natulungan po ako ng IJM sa pamigitan po na sa case ko, sa pagtulong po nila na ma-overcome ko po yung, yung fear. Each year, we rescue thousands of slaves and protect millions around the world. We are transforming how justice systems protect their citizens. To those who are still enslaved, we promise to find you. We will get you home to your families so you can have the freedom you deserve. said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which, which was lost. Lord, we thank you for giving us the example of coming into our broken world. To come in the, the form of a man that we might know what God the Father is like. And then, Lord, you call us to partner with you and to do the same. So, Father, I do pray, God, that our hearts would be more than, more than filled, more than emotional, but, Jesus, that your spirit would work in us to do the things that you've called us to do. Lord, your spirit, if he lives in us, causes us to become more like Christ, to desire the things that Christ desires. And God, we see this as a, a part of a mission that it's, it's not even just the cause in and of itself, but it's the cause because there's a God that loves people. It's our cause because, Lord, it's your cause. Father, I thank you for Rebecca. Thank you, Lord, for um, Lord the blessing that she is to our family and to the body of Christ. And, and just we pray that uh, you would anoint her, Lord, use her wherever you would send her. Father, as a, as a dad, as Deanna and I uh, pray for her, that's a, that's a challenge for us to let go, to say, God, wherever you want to send her. But Lord, um, we, we realize that uh, you who uh, did not spare your own son, you freely give us all things. And Lord, how can we not help but do the same? So Father, bless Rebecca, bless IJM, the aftercare organizations that are out there, the prosecutors, Lord, the those that fight for justice, God, and uh, remind us that you have shown us, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of us, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks. I knew that was going to be hard. <laughs> Open up to the book of John with, with me, if you would. John chapter 4 this morning. 
I'll tell you, earlier this week, I, I really got choked up just with the Gospel of John in chapter 4. After coming through Romans, leading into, um, into Christmas and Thanksgiving and then into the new year, I just, I just felt like the Lord wanted us to focus on Jesus. And, and what I want to do in these next few weeks is just focus on Jesus being full of grace and truth. Um, in John 1.14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you only have grace, you have this sense of everybody uh, is free, do what you want, and, and sometimes we could even see that as a cheap grace. It's a grace that, that doesn't hold us into accountability. Then if you only have truth, then you have this brutality. If this is the right thing to do, this is the truth, here's judgment, here's God's commands, don't break God's commands, and you only have truth. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. And he gives us a picture in the form of his life that he lives out all of these values of the kingdom of God, who God is himself. And we see Jesus live this out full of grace and truth. And then we get to see these glimpses of him in the Bible, Jesus and, and we could, we could finish the other part of that sentence, Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and Zacchaeus, Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus and, and, and so many Jesus and, and there's so many times when we read in the gospels, we realize that for God so loved the world, but he also loved this individual that he stopped and he ministered to this individual. And we need to see that it's not only about God so loving the world, but that God loves people as individuals. And that's why last week when we looked at Romans 16, we really focused on uh, the fact that people matter. And people matter to God. And so this morning, we are going to consider Jesus and the woman at the well. So turn to John chapter 4. And as we read John chapter 4, this first part, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. When we consider Jesus and the woman at the well, it says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. If you have a King James Version, it, it sounds redundant, but it says Jesus must needs must needs and that's kind of weird that doesn't sound like proper english must needs but it depicts something in which there's an urgency on jesus's part where he must go to that place he must go through samaria now one of the things that i wanted to share is the difference between judah and galilee jesus was leaving judah to go to galilee and if you've been to israel judah is where jerusalem is it's uh, the epicenter of all of Israel, the epicenter in many ways of the world. You have the Temple Mount that is there in Jerusalem. And one of the things that you find is that when you go to Jerusalem, it feels very, very intense. Because the world is focused on the tension that is going on, specifically between Islam and the Jews. And then you have Christians that are there in Israel also, specifically in Judah. Now, this place in Judah, when you go to Jerusalem... Uh, you have a lot of the Orthodox Jews there. You have the Wailing Wall. You see uh, that there are, are, are Muslims that are there, and you feel the tension, and you can almost feel that when you go from one side of the street to another side of the street, when you enter from the Jewish quarter into the, the Muslim quarter, 
you, you really feel this, this tension that is there. The same thing was true in Jesus' time when you had these Pharisees that were there. You had the Sanhedrin. You had these religious leaders. And, and the feel there spiritually was uh, in, in many ways um, depicted in the climate. Because Jerusalem is at a higher elevation. And it's colder. Spiritually and emotionally, it's colder. When you go to Galilee, one of the things that you find is that it's a Mediterranean climate. It's beautiful. There's palm trees and olive trees and uh, the, the weather is great. And you just, you kind of feel like it's a vacation spot and people are more low-key and they're just kind of more uh, accepting and, and friendly. And so Jesus was leaving Judah, Judea and he was going towards, uh, towards Galilee. But it says that he needed to go through Samaria. And one thing that is important to realize is that the Samaritans had a, a very intense relationship with the Jews. If you were here on Wednesday night, you know that after King David died, he had a son named Solomon. And after Solomon died, that there was a civil war within Israel. The two tribes in the south separated from the ten tribes in the north. The two tribes in the south had Jerusalem. And the ten tribes that were in the north, that area became known as Israel or, or later on, um, this is what is known as the Samaritans. Now, let me give you the background is that, you know, um, in the southern kingdom, they were loyal to God somewhat because they had some kings that were righteous. The northern 10 tribes or counties of Israel, they had no good kings. They went their own way. They followed their own uh, way of worshiping and God warned them. And eventually Assyria came and wiped out the northern 10 tribes and took them away. And they became assimilated into a, a group of people called the Samaritans. And that's why racially, there had always been a tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And we could look at that geographically as, okay, well, that makes sense because you have one kingdom that's in, or one area that's in the south and another area that's in the north. But let me tell you what the Jews did. This thing seems to be pulling a little bit there. Um, the Jews would actually, instead of going through Samaria, they would go around, they would take a detour, a more difficult route, a longer route, just so that they did not have to go through Samaria. Now, to help you to understand that, you know that there are racial tensions all over the world. I, I mean, if you think about it today, if you have a, a, a Sunni group, you know, versus a, another type of Muslim group they don't they don't mix you know that there are nations in the world that they don't they don't deal well with one another and we see even within our own nation when you consider that there is still racial tension that there are certain places in downtown Los Angeles that if you're African American you go a different way because there are Hispanic gangs in that area and if you're Hispanic you don't go through these certain areas because there might be these African American gangs and so Sometimes you see tension like that. Even in the South, you might, you might see that there's still division even in our own nation. So we need to realize all of us have some prejudice sometimes in one way, shape, or form, sometimes without even realizing it. We just start to think of people as lower or, or different or weird. 
and we're the normal ones. Isn't that a crazy thing? I think it's funny how we, we go to other countries, and when I travel to another country, I look at what they do in their country, and I think that's weird, right? I mean, I'm the, I'm the foreigner minority outside of my own nation in another nation, and I'm looking at what that nation does, and in the middle of that nation, I could say, eh, that's, that's weird. So you have this tension, but Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And the reason why I believe that that's important is because it's more than just a geographical fact that Samaria is between Judah and Galilee. I believe that Jesus needed to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment in mind. There was someone that he needed to meet. There was someone that he needed to talk to, and he knew her. You find out in verse 5, he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, they had ways of measuring time. 6 a.m. would be like the first hour. 9 a.m. would be like the third uh, hour. 12 noon is the sixth hour. It's about 12 noon. And Jesus is here in Samaria, and it says that he is wearied from his journey. Now in verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For this woman had gone away into the city, or, or for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So we have 12 noon at Jacob's well. The sun was high and hot at that time of the day. And yet the women, culturally, would be the ones to draw water. And as they would go to draw water, they would draw water in the cool of the morning. In fact, they would go in the cool of the morning together as a group of women, not only for safety, but also for companionship. And we see this woman that is here, and she comes to Jacob's well at 12 noon in the heat and the high sun, and she is by herself. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, especially not a a rabbi, not an orthodox teacher. And Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and he was alone. He was alone in Samaria at this well. And this woman came alone. And he asked the Samaritan woman to give him a drink. And it wasn't something that was proper or respectable, that, that proper, respectable Jewish men would do in the eyes of other Jewish people in their culture. It was especially not something that rabbis would do. And we see that in verse 9, it says, Then the woman of Samaria, and I want you to notice that as John is including these details inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there's this repetition of woman of Samaria, woman of Samaria. We already know that. But it's this emphasis. She's a woman, and she's a Samaritan. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I want to ask you a question. Maybe, who are Samaritans to you? Now, you might not think of them as Samaritans in the same way, but but there's certain people that you just don't deal with. You have no dealings with those types, whatever those types are. You You don't cross the street if that type of person is on the other side of the street you don't talk to that type of person in the grocery store you don't sit next to that type of person at a movie theater 
In fact, you have feelings and you think about those things and it may not be a race. It may be someone that is poor. It might be someone whose skin is marked up with ink in a certain way. It might be someone with piercings in places that you're thinking that is, that is crazy. It might be someone with giant plugs in their ears. Or it might be someone dressed in a suit. It might be someone that seems very wealthy. It might be someone that drives a nice car. It might be someone that is very hip and kind of into the styles and into the fashions and the prejudgment in your mind says, I already know what that person is like. It might be someone that is overweight, out of shape. It might be someone that is in great shape and it seems like that's all they do. And we have ways of sizing other people up to say, I have no dealings with those people because those people are different. They are not like me. And sometimes we even imagine that they are the ones that are judging us before we ever talk to them, before there's ever a conversation. And one of the things that I love about Jesus is that Jesus is willing to risk and go to this woman in spite of the fact that he knows that if other people see him talking to this woman alone, that's a Samaritan woman, that people are gonna start talking about him. Now, when Jesus and this Samaritan woman are are there and he asks her to give him a drink, she understands all of the social and cultural constraints of their time. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The previous chapter in John chapter three, we know that Jesus had another um, meeting and we'll look at him later. His name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the opposite of the woman at the well. He was someone that was wealthy and religious and had power and he was respectable. Jesus explain to Nicodemus for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life see the gift of God is Jesus himself and he's telling this woman if you only knew this gift this gift that God has given and who it is who says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water in verse 11 the woman said to him Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? So remember that the the Jews and the Samaritans had the same root. They had the same patriarchs. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even though they had split, and there was a civil war, and they were now different, She's saying, our father, are you greater than our father Jacob? She calls to mind this common thing that the Jews and the Samaritans had, their father Jacob, who gave them this well and drank from it. Are you greater than them? Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. A fountain is different than a well. One is stagnant and the other one is moving and flowing. 
this living water would become in her a, a fountain springing up to everlasting life. A fountain that does not stop flowing. A, a, a source to fill your thirst continually, everlasting. It's not you, you drink it and then it's gone and then it's not there and you have to fill it again. It's this everlasting source. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. This woman, this Samaritan woman is ready for that water, or so she thinks. Give me this water. I don't want to thirst anymore. I don't want to feel the way that I'm feeling. I I want this thirst to be satisfied. In many ways, she had been searching for it her whole life. In a sense, she's saying, I don't want to come back here again. I don't want every day to be just like today. Every day going to the well alone. Every day being reminded that there's no one in my life that is filling that need. Every day, these other women going at times when I don't go. So she is open to him. And you know, if you are an evangelist, if you are a Christian that is seeking to lead someone to Christ, this is it. Here's your open door. This is the opportunity. This is where you just say, hey, would you just bow your head and pray the sinner's prayer with me right here, right now. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He does something very strange. In fact, he does something uncomfortable. Very crazy. He gets very personal. My professor in college, uh, Bruce Boulogne, used to say that Jesus goes for the juggler vein. So he's going for the jugular vein. He is going right to the issue that she needs to deal with in her life. It says here in this next verse, in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. So here she is. I want the living water. Time to pray. Time to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Time to receive the gift. But then Jesus says, no, go call your husband. What does he know about her? Why does he do this? Why does he ask her this to do this very personal and awkward thing? Go and call your husband. And the woman said, I I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband either. In that you have spoken truly. For a span of five husbands, this woman may have come to this well. Five broken relationships. Now, for any of you that have ever been divorced, you understand the pain that comes from that. Whether or not you were the one that asked for the divorce or the other person asked for the divorce. You understand if you've ever been through a breakup. You understand the pain that comes from a breakup. Five times in this woman's life, she felt like someone else made a vow to me. Someone else made a covenant with me. Uh, She was married five times. And now here she is at noon alone in a dead end relationship that is going nowhere. Why? Why is she in this relationship? Maybe because of convenience. Maybe because, hey, somehow this relationship, you know, it's, it's convenient to have someone else with me? It it probably, for a woman in this culture, was also for safety. She needed to be protected. 
She needed to be provided for. There was some sense of security. And she probably thought being better with, being with this man is better than being alone. So the woman in verse 19 said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So notice that he was a Jewish man. Then he was a rabbi. Now she sees him as a prophet. Something is happening in Jesus' dealings with her where she's becoming more and more aware of who this man might be. And it says that, I perceive that you're a prophet in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So whether it's, you know, in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, there's two different places that, that they were to worship. She's asking where? Where is the proper place? She's asking in a sense, what's the right format? How should I do this? I, I remember um, our youth pastor um, in Gilroy, he went to a, a confirmation for a, a student that was going to our church, but was also going to the Catholic church. And he had never been to a Catholic church. And he was telling me about uh, his experience ha never having gone to a Catholic church. How many of you have never gone to a Catholic church? Anyone here? Okay, a few of you who've never gone to a Catholic church. All right. How many of you have gone to a Catholic church? All right, most of us. Okay, you know, because I was raised in a Catholic church, that there are, there's a liturgy. Just like we have a liturgy, there's an order of service. But you have to learn it because there's a lot of moving parts. You know, there's the, the holy water, then there's the incense, and then there's the ringing of the bell, and there's communion, and then there, there's peace be with you. And what do you say? And also with you. Let us offer one another the sign of peace. So our youth pastor is there not knowing what the sign of peace is and looks at this lady and goes, <laughs> and she's just looking at it like what and he he didn't know he wasn't trying to be a smart aleck he just he didn't know what he's supposed to do so here's this woman and i don't think that she's necessarily trying to throw a smoke screen i just think like she's thinking well i've heard these things but then i know that you jews do these things you know how should i do this where should i worship what's the proper format in verse 21 jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's not saying the way to worship is to be sitting physically in a church. Now, I hope and I pray that when we sing, when we're here, that we're worshiping. But being in a building with other people singing in musical instruments does not equate necessarily to worship. So to worship in spirit, it's the Holy Spirit who leads us into worship. It's more than singing. I have sung without worshiping i have sung without worshiping especially if i'm distracted and my mind is somewhere else and i know the words of a song so that i could repeat it and i'm not even thinking about it and my lips are singing and there's voice coming out but my mind is thinking about something else but let me also say that i have worshiped without singing and there have been times when i have been scrubbing a toilet or I've been changing a diaper, that at that moment, that becomes worship 
Because in my attitude, I'm saying, Lord, help me to do this with a good attitude. Help me to do this as unto you. God wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. God's reality. Um, people so many times, uh, this is the mantra, especially where we live. I'm spiritual, but not religious. What does that even mean, right? Spiritual, but not religious. And I kind of get what they mean when they say that I'm spiritual, but not religious. It means I, I'm very spiritual, but I don't follow rules. I don't go to a certain place and I don't worship in a, a certain way. But I want to let you know that the word religion literally means to relink to God. So how do we relink? How do we connect to God? Let me tell you the way that God says that we're to relink, reconnect with God. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's how we relink to God. And so we worship in spirit. Yes, our emotion is a part of it. And the Holy Spirit leads us into this time of singing. And hopefully at times that there's joy. Not all the time, but there's joy. Sometimes there's sadness. Sometimes there's this realization of the weight of the gospel. But let me tell you that it's also worshiping in truth. And that's why we open up the word of God and study it. Because God has given us his word. In fact, one of the things that God had against his own people, both in the north and the south, was this. They said, we'll worship you our own way. We're going to do things our way. We'll worship you, but it's just how we want to worship, and we're going to make the rules. And God says, no, when you worship that way, I, I don't even hear you. It's just a bunch of noise to me. It's just religiosity. So in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She saw Jesus as a Jew, then sir, then a prophet. And then she's talking about the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Do you realize that Jesus reveals himself to this Samaritan woman in a way that he didn't even open up to the Jewish leaders, to the religious people, to this woman he reveals himself. And I, I believe that there's a principle there that when we're really seeking the Lord, he will reveal himself to us. If we're playing games and we're just trying to go through the motions and we're wondering why I don't sense the same thing as other people, maybe it's because I haven't come in spirit and in truth saying, here's my heart, here's my transparency. This is what's going on in my, my, my life. Now in verse 27, at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water pot. She went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and they came to him. I want you to see that she left her water pot. She she was so encaptured, enthralled, understanding that there is something special about this Jesus that she's able to leave everyday routine and what she was doing because she needs to deal with this urgently. Come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And, and I, I think that there was somewhat of a joy because other people knew what she had done. 
In fact, I believe that the other women would probably go and draw water whispering. I believe that other people knew what she did and they had this attitude towards her. And Jesus' attitude was different. In verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say that there are still four months and then the harvest comes? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus reminds his disciples that his food, his sustenance is doing what God had called him to do. His, his food comes from a different source. His satisfaction the mission that God had given to him. And understand this, one sows and another reaps. You may not be the one to lead another person to Christ in a prayer, but I guarantee you that if your heart is open, you could be one of the ones to plant seeds. And there are those that plant and those that reap. And maybe God has blessed you with the opportunities to lead someone to Christ in a prayer and being that person that prays and, and that person enters into faith. Most of the time, what we do is we plant seeds in other people's lives by showing them love, by living it, sometimes by opening up our mouths and giving them the message whether they receive it or not. And sometimes we can't give them the whole message, but we could just give them a part. We could just give them a glimpse. You know that there are times when God opens up that opportunity to go all the way with the person and share the full gospel. But there are other times when it's, it's a simple thing that I'm going to pray for you. You know what? How are you doing? Writing them a note. If it's someone that is in a parking lot, even if, it, even if it's someone that you haven't met, opening a door for them, as someone shared in prayer uh, this morning about a, a young man on the skateboard and as she was getting out of the car, she was wondering like, is this kid safe? You know, what, what's going on? And this kid is riding a skateboard up to her car and she's wondering like, what's gonna happen? And he opens the door for her. Who knows? Maybe he was a believer saying, hey, I'm praying for this lady. Hopefully she comes to know Christ. I, I don't know. But, but I'll tell you that God wants us to lift up our eyes to see that the harvest is ready. I don't lift my eyes enough to look at the harvest through God's eyes. There are too many times that crowds are just crowds, long lines are just long lines, traffic is just traffic. But if we would pray that God would give us his heart to see people as he sees them, I think one of the things that you would see is that your teachers are not just teachers, they're people that are created in the image of God that need to come to know him. Your bosses are not just bosses. Your employees are not just employees. Your neighbors are not just neighbors. They're people created in the image of God. And remember that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, the end of this chapter, one of the things that you'll see, it says in verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, 
he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Verse 42, then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Remember, all you could do is share the truth and the love of Christ with other people. But notice that it was because she shared her encounter with Jesus, these people said, now we believe, not because of what you said. That caused us to be interested. You invited me and I came to church. You told me about him. I read the Bible. You told me about this website. You told me about this television program. You gave me this CD to listen to. You gave me this DVD. You did your part, but now I believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. I heard God's voice. God spoke to me. I know that he's real. We know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. As we pray, understand this. God's heart for us is that we are satisfied in him. You know what God's heart is for you this morning? It's that you and I, that you would be satisfied in him. There's a man named Jeremiah that was called the weeping prophet. And God gave the, these words to Jeremiah the prophet. It says in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people, this is God speaking, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know what God, his heart is grieved by? His heart is grieved by the fact that they forsook him, the, the fountain of living water, and then they built for themselves cisterns. This morning, are you building cisterns that are broken and don't hold water? Do you know what a cistern is? It's a reservoir. It's a container. Uh, cisterns were big, big containers, wells, reservoirs that were dug in order to give water to that population. And you know what? I want you to understand that sometimes we could look to the well of success. And what's the difference between a worshiper of God that is successful and someone that's not a worshiper of God that's successful? The worshiper of God that is successful says, God, thank you for this success. I've worked, but you've blessed me and all glory goes to you. The non-worshiper of Christ that has success says, Look at all of this, and all of this is because of me. And I'm looking to this success that I've created in order to fill me, and it will leave them empty. To the person that looks to relationships, that's a worshiper of Christ. The relationship just becomes a reflection of God wanting to know us. Community, God loves people. We begin to see people in the image of God, and that relationship becomes a blessing and part of what we praise God for. And the relationship apart from Christ becomes something that sometimes we could put all of our hope into. And when that relationship doesn't fulfill, we become sad and dissatisfied. And it becomes idolatry because we're looking to a person to meet all of our needs. To a worshiper of Christ, when it comes to sexual pleasure, that becomes something that is glorifying to God because it's in the context of a marriage relationship, 
of two committed people that are willing to die to self and love each other even during difficult times when emotions come and go. To the non-worshipper of Christ, it becomes a means to look for that fulfillment and the ends in and of itself. And it can become even cheap and addicted and very self-centered in nature. So two people can be doing the same thing, experiencing success, uh, working out, uh, enjoying the beach, enjoying creation. But this person worships and looks at it as the end all. And this person looks at it to glorify God. And every time we lower the cup into these other wells, we come up empty, parched, dry, thirsty again. And Jesus calls out to us all the way from the book of Isaiah saying, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. This morning, the living water is a gift to be received thankfully, not a wage to be earned. I would pray that every one of us comes to that place of saying, give me that living water. And if even as a Christian, even as a follower of Christ, those living waters can grow stagnant in my life not that god ever grows stagnant i could grow stagnant i could grow very stale i'm praying that this morning that the holy spirit renews that desire for that living water and that not only does he give us that desire for it but then we go out and look for those that are thirsty god show me those that are thirsty and let me tell them about you maybe their testimony will be like these men that said you know what, we believe now, not because of what you said, but because we heard him speak ourselves. We experience this for ourselves. I want to pray, and as we do this, you know, Rebecca earlier shared about these, these girls, these women that are looking for something. And sometimes even, hey, don't rescue me from this. This is all I've ever known. For the woman at the well, this was all that she had ever known. And Jesus says, let me give you something better. Let me me replace that. I'm praying that God does that in our hearts and that he breaks our hearts for the things that break his heart. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to thank you so much for... We want to thank you for the fact that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Lord, we want to thank you that not only do we know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but we also know that Jesus, you had these individual encounters with real people. And this morning, I pray that we would be those people that you have an encounter with. Lord, forgive us for the times when we lower our cup into things that don't satisfy. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we continually come to those empty, broken, dry cisterns over and over and over when you tell us to come freely and to drink. This morning as we worship you, as we sing, 
that it would be more than just chords and melody and harmony, but God, that there would be something within our hearts that worships you. Jesus, I would pray if there's anyone here this morning that has never surrendered to you. Jesus, I want to thank you that when you told the woman at the well to go and call her husband, that you wanted to let her know that you knew everything about her and you were still offering. Lord, thank you that you know everything about us and you still offer your grace. You bid us this morning, we believe, to come and to drink to come and to be filled, to come and to be satisfied. And God, it is an amazing thing that the more that we drink from the living water, the more that we thirst for more living water and we are ever filled. And Lord, that is so different than every other well. So Jesus, meet with us here this morning as we worship you. Draw close to us as we draw close to you. And use us, Lord. Use us to find other thirsty people that we could introduce you to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.